Christmas is a <coughs> Christmas is a time for stringing lights. In the old days, if you had a string of Christmas lights, if one bulb in that string burned out, all the lights would go out at the same time. But in the 1950s, they installed a tiny little shot wire. It's about the thickness of a human hair at the bottom of every bulb, so that if the bulb goes out, all the other bulbs will stay lit. However, if you take one of those bulbs out and pull it out, it's going to take down your entire string. So as long as the sockets and the bulb sockets are intact, if one bulb goes out, the rest are going to be just fine. Well, all too often, the light that shines from God's word is often seen only as individual bulbs, if you will. That is, the events, stories, happenings in the scriptures are often viewed as individual and even isolated events and the relationship to each other is lost. And thus, the light goes out, as it were, for there is so much to be learned in connecting these important elements of God's word. So if this connection that exists between the stories and events is understood, the light of the scriptures shines even more brightly and powerfully. So this morning, we're going to string together, as it were, many scripture verses and passages with the hope that the light shines even brighter as we understand the big picture of the incarnation. So I'm begging with you to bear with me for we're probably going to look at more than 20 passages of scripture this morning. Uh, you don't need to turn there to each one. I, I will summarize them, but we want to see the big picture this morning. Our theme for the series is a consideration of God's coming down to us in the incarnation. Last week, we looked at God coming down at the burning bush. This morning, we're going to look at God coming down at Mount Sinai. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, I'm just going to highlight some of the verses. First, I'm highlighting those verses that indeed tell us that the Lord God came down. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and also believe you forever, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 11, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. So the emphasis is God coming down on the mount. In coming down, God descended from heaven. Exodus, Exodus 19, 18. Now Moses... 
Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So God comes down out of heaven to manifest his presence on Mount Sinai in the form of a fire. In coming down, God not only descended out of heaven, but he also condescended to coming down to his people. In condescending, we speak of his lowering himself, humbling himself, to come to those who were beneath him, infinitely beneath him. In association with God's coming down out of heaven was a display of the awesomeness of God. That is a cosmic display of shock and awe. They were to understand the magnificence, the, the sovereignty, the greatness of this one who was coming down, God. And so God put on this light show, if you will, this incredible display that demonstrates his power, his authority. Exodus 19:16. On the coming of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 18, now Moses, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. God's magnificence, splendor, and glory was put on display. Often in the scriptures, these cosmic phenomena of lightning and thunder and loud trumpets, etc., is associated with the very presence of God. Fast forwarding to the book of Revelation. When God is revealed in the book of Revelation and we're able to see God high and lifted up and seated on his throne, in order to get a sense of what that majesty and greatness of God is like, when God is revealed as sitting on his throne, we read these words, Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, thunder, earthquake, and a great hail. Many of which we see in Exodus chapter 19. How are you going to understand the greatness of God? Well, he shows his power in this incredible display of phenomenon. Again, in Revelation chapter 16, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Once again, these comic, cosmic events displayed God's power, holiness, and created fear in those who witnessed them. However, at the incarnation, 
When God comes down in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see something entirely different. There are no thunderclaps. There is no lightning. There is no blast of a trumpet. All those things that often are associated with a revelation of God's presence is notably absent in the Incarnation. The reason is that what is on display in the Incarnation is not God's power and magnificent and majestic splendor, but rather his humility and condescension, that God is lowering himself to take upon himself flesh and not only be associated with, but actually becoming a man, a God-man. In his condescending, we speak of his lowering himself or humbling himself to come like one that is far beneath him. That condescension is referred to in the book of Philippians when we're told to have the same kind of mind or attitude that Jesus had. For it tells us in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is to be hold, held on to, to, to clutch to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. In existing in the form of God speaks of his being a member of the, the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity. And emptying himself, it does not mean that he ceased to be God, it means he gave up all the glories and the magnificence of heaven. He did not hold on to that dignity and splendor and loftiness, but rather he associated himself with us. And not only by being with us, but actually taking upon himself humanity, being born in the likeness of man. And then, even as a man, furthering his humility by suffering death, even the death of the cross. Just as there were signs associated with God's coming down on Mount Sinai that bore witness to his majesty and glory, the cosmic events, if you will, so too there were signs that were associated with God's coming down at the incarnation that bore witness to his humiliation. One of the most notable ones is given to us in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, when the angel said to the shepherds, this will be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The Son of God left the throne of heaven to be placed in a manger on the earth. That was to be a sign. It was to be a demonstration of the very essence of the incarnation. It's the humiliation 
How more humble a beginning than to be placed in a manger is the point. But it's fitting. Just as the thunderclaps and just as the earthquakes were fitting and appropriate to demonstrate the magnificence and splendor of God, so too the lying in a manger was appropriate and helpful for us in understanding the depths of the humiliation and the humility of God in condescending to become incarnate. In the Exodus passage, in addition to the cosmic events that were given to reveal the awesomeness of God, there was also a command given to keep one's distance from the very presence of God. In fact, they were not even to touch the mount. The mount just represented the area around that which housed the presence of God. And even the entire mount became sacred and off limits. For it says in verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain, or, and this is the significant word that we're going to focus on this morning, or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mount shall be put to death. Whoever touches the mount will die. The condescension and humility that takes place in the carnation is further seen in the most dramatic way in saying that the Son of God subjected himself to being touched and handled by humans. 1 John 1, 1 states, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our own hands. Concerning the word of life. This idea that God allowed himself to be touched by our hands. That is a very profound thought. And to understand just how profound it is, or miraculously to get a little closer to understanding just how profound that thought is, we're going to string together, following our analogy, in order to get a greater light on the subject, we're going to string together a slew of passages in which it refers to Jesus being touched. And I have organized these passages, these incidents, these occurrences, in where Jesus has been touched to better understand the overall picture. So I put them into categories of situations in which Jesus was touched, and what it reveals to us about the significance of the Incarnation. So the first category 
of instances where Jesus condescended in allowing people to touch him are instances in which Jesus allowed the wicked to touch him. Jesus not only allowed himself to be touched, but Jesus allowed himself to be physically abused. Jesus allowed the individuals at his trial to physically abuse him. Matthew 26, 27. Then they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? They mocked him, they ridiculed him, and they physically manhandled him. The humility of the Son of God to allow himself to be treated in such a way. Jesus allowed himself to be physically abused by the soldiers. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They placed a purple robe on his back. And they nailed him to a cross. He allowed himself to be touched, to be manhandled, to be abused. This humiliation on the part of Jesus was real. But he did not let it keep him from coming down, nor did he let it keep him from going to the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it reads, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It should be astounding to us that God would come down to such a degree. And yes, he bore the shame of the cross, the ridicule, the agony, the nakedness that was associated with the cross. But he endured it because he despised it, meaning that he didn't reflect upon the humiliation. He thought about the glory to come. He looked beyond it, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Once again, exalted. This time, not merely as the Son of God, but the God-man, the glorified Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, which is his rightful place, which is what he so deserves. This one who was at, and now again is at the very throne of God, came down to be born of a woman, to be placed in a manger. The second category of Jesus' condescension and coming down out of heaven is in allowing those who were unclean to touch him. Jesus allowed himself to be touched by the woman who had an issue of blood. 
Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 43, reads as follows. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringes of his garment. And immediately this discharge of blood ceased. Jesus confronts the woman. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd around you, and they are all pressing in on you. Jesus said, but someone touched me. He made a distinction from all those that were pressing in upon him, a distinction that the disciples did not readily understand. He said, there is someone who touched me. Now, he knew it was. But he wasn't going to let it just go into obscurity for it contained a great truth. So the woman comes forth. Verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Now you need to understand that according to the Old Testament law, a woman who had an issue of blood was unclean. She was not allowed to touch anyone. In fact, even her clothes, anything that she would have sat upon, according to the Old Testament, was unclean and was to be avoided. This woman, who was not to touch anyone, dared to touch Jesus. And so she falls trembling before him. What is he going to do? For I touched him. And the law says, I can't touch anyone. The woman is spared. Even though she has touched Jesus' garment, she is healed. And there's no consequence for her having touched him. For Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's okay. It's all right that you touched me. Jesus, in his humility, actually initiated the touch of an unclean leper. Again, in the Old Testament, a leper was not permitted to enter into the sphere of another individual. They, they could not touch another individual. In fact, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, so the people would stay away. The concern was for the spread of leprosy, among other things. And so in Luke chapter 5, a leper came to Jesus to be healed of his leprosy. 
While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus touched the leper. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, again, this is very intentional, and it's meant to convey a great truth. For Jesus did not need to touch the leper. All he had to do was speak. All he had to say is be clean, and he would have been clean. But with a great deal of intentionality, he reaches out and touches this unclean leper and then says, go, show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. To demonstrate who I am. Go show yourself to the priest. In the Old Testament, if a leper got over his leprosy, he was to go to the priest and they were to look at him and examine him very carefully to making sure that indeed he was healed. He said, go to the priest. Make an offering. Do all that the Old Testament law says as proof to them of who I am. What are we to learn from these interactions with the unclean? First, that Jesus was not made unclean in coming in contact with others, but instead could make others clean by coming into contact with him. So different from anything else that we find in Scripture. That he could not be defiled, and he could remove the defilement of others. Jesus did not spurn those who were unclean, but actually welcomed them and touched them. He, who knew no sin, took upon himself our sins. And in doing so, he himself did not become a sinner, but he was treated as a sinner, so that we could be treated as righteous, so that we could be healed, so that we could be cleansed, and so we could have fellowship with him forever and ever. The third category of the Son of God's condescension and coming down out of heaven is in allowing those who loved him to touch him. Now, initially, that doesn't seem like a, like a big deal. But let me remind you that in the Old Testament, one was not allowed to touch that which was sacred or holy, even out of the best of motives or a degree of love, if you will. Take, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant was not to be touched. The warning was that if you touch the Ark, you will die. In the time of David, when taking the Ark to Jerusalem, rather than carrying the Ark on their shoulders, as the priests were supposed to do, they placed it 
in the back of a cart. As the cart was moving, the animal stumbled, the cart was jostled, and the ark was about to fall to the ground. But Uzzah, out of a desire to preserve the ark's falling into the dirt, raised his hand to steady the ark, and as soon as he touched it, he fell dead. And David was angry that God would strike down this man who wanted to preserve the ark. But the ark was so sacred it was not to be touched for any reason. Even out of the best of motives, even those that were closest, the priests could not touch the ark. They had to carry it on their shoulders by means of a pole that went through the rings that were on the edges of the ark. No one could touch the ark. The God-man humbled himself in allowing those who loved him to touch him. Mary Luke 2, 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. Mary is allowed to care for Jesus. She's able to hold her in her arms. What a blessedness. The angel says to Mary, Behold, The Lord has blessed you. You have found favor with God. Mary says, Behold, the Lord hath done for me great things. She had been given this privilege of having a relationship to Jesus. The God-man humbled himself in allowing Simeon to take him up in his arms when Jesus was but a babe and was presented in the temple for the consecration according to the law. Luke chapter 2, 25 and following, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the Spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him a According to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him. God humbled himself in being allowed to be ministered to by others, which was viewed as a privilege and a delight. How we need to understand the blessedness that we have in order to come close and, yes, to minister to and to be used of God to do his work, for he certainly doesn't need us. It can be done by angels, and it could easily be done without us. The God-man humbled himself in allowing John to lean against him at the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, Jesus had just announced that one of the disciples would betray him namely Judas, but they didn't know who it was. And so, in John 12, 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, 
to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. John, you ask him, who is this one who's going to betray him? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, you get the picture? They're at the Last Supper. Jesus just announced that one of them is going to betray him. You ask him. So now he just leans back, laying against Jesus' chest, and says, Lord, who is it? He allows himself to be familiar with Jesus. He asks the most personal question. But the point is that Jesus accepts that touch. The Son of God humbled himself by allowing a very sinful woman to kiss his feet. Luke 7, 36 and following. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with his hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, the Pharisee thought, if Jesus really knew who this woman was, if he, if he was the prophet that he pretended to be, that he never would have allowed a woman like that to touch him. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. No holy person, no godly person is going to let somebody like that touch them. He can't be a prophet. The obvious implication is that the Pharisee would never have allowed himself to be touched by such a woman. The Pharisee viewed this woman to be far beneath him. This Pharisee had failed to see, though, how Jesus had humbled himself to even eat with the Pharisee. For listen to the words of Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you have judged rightly. The point of this analogy is that Simon the Pharisee was a debtor just as this woman was a debtor. After he had said that, then verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he, that is Jesus, said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water. 
for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. Simon, the Pharisee, missed the point. He thought this woman was unworthy to touch the feet of Jesus. Simon did not understand he was unworthy that Jesus even ate with him. But he didn't understand that. He didn't see that. He did not see his place. He thought this woman was beneath himself. And he failed to see that he was no different than this woman. The humility of Jesus. What are we to learn? We are to learn that no one is beneath us. We are to learn that we may view people to be beneath us, but even people who are beneath us are welcomed by Jesus. And what we really should be amazed by is that Jesus welcomes us at all. That he allows you and me to draw near to him. The Son of God humbled himself even to be touched by one who just pretended to love Jesus. Judas Iscariot was one who pretended to love Jesus. Of course, he is the one who denies Jesus. And he had given a sign to the Pharisees and to the soldiers and all those that came to the garden to arrest Jesus. He gave him a sign so that they would know who to arrest. He said, the one that I kiss, that's the one. Matthew 26, 49, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus allowed this betrayer to kiss him. And the dastardliness of that is seen in his words to the betrayer, Judas. Luke twenty two forty eight. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you really going to betray me by pretending to love me with a kiss? But in the humility of Jesus, he allowed it to take place. You know, God knows what is in our hearts this morning. He knows when our worship of him is real and when our worship of him is feigned. He knows this morning who really loves him and who really doesn't. He knows who belongs to him and those who don't. Now, the rest of us, of course, don't know. And so we all sit and we all sing the carols and, and we all worship. 
and most likely you're going to be able to walk out of here and nothing's going to happen and nobody's going to be struck dead. But it is amazing that God tolerates false worship. And we can think that we're getting away with it because God is humble. Because he came not to condemn but to save. But know that God knows. And there is a day of reckoning. And there's ultimate destruction for one who does not really love but feigns their love for God even as Judas goes out and destroys himself. Jesus not only allowed Judas to touch him, but Jesus allowed Thomas to touch him and actually commands Thomas to touch him. In John chapter 20, we have an account of Jesus coming to the disciples, he is now resurrected. He is risen from the dead, and he appears to his disciples, but John isn't, uh, excuse me, but Thomas isn't present. Tells us in John chapter 20, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus accommodated the unbelief of Thomas. This Thomas who demanded, who said, I won't believe unless I can touch those wounds, that I can see the reality of those wounds and know indeed it's the risen Christ. Jesus says to Thomas, come here. Touch me. See and believe. Jesus then said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. You know, we probably would long to be able to put our hands into the nail prints and see and believe. But Jesus says, blessed are all those who believe. That God has done a work in our hearts, you and me. If we know the Lord Jesus is our Savior, it's because he has come down to us. He has met us in our unbelief, in our doubt, and created faith within us. Because he loves us. And because he cares for us. The fourth and last category of condescension is that God humbles himself to embrace us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Mark, people are bringing children to Jesus to be blessed by him. Mark 10, 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them.
You see the corresponding dots? It's about touching him. That he might touch them. Because they know that if Jesus just touches them, they're going to be blessed. The disciples viewed this as a waste of Jesus' time. And when they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, the disciples rebuked them. So these parents that are bringing the children, the disciples say, enough of this. Take these kids away. Don't trouble Jesus by wanting him to bless your children. But Jesus communicates that rather than wasting his time, Jesus taught that this is the very reason for his coming. It, in fact, was the best use of his time. For it tells us in 10.14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. How dare you? And said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Jesus humbles himself. He speaks. He comes down to those that others won't. These Babes are significant to Jesus. This is why I came. And everyone has to become like a babe. If they're going to enter the kingdom of God, they've got to humble themselves and trust and believe in Jesus. Next verse. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on their heads. He embraced them. He picked them up. He held them. Because he died to save them. This was the reason he came. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He came down to make us a part of his family. He came down to treat us like his son. He came down to make us like Jesus. And to enjoy the relationship that the Son of God had with the Father for all eternity past. You and I now get to enter into that relationship. He is not afraid to distance himself from us. He came down to embrace us. And coming down to us in the incarnation, God the Son humbled himself in bringing us into an intimate relationship with himself. But do not think of God as austere or aloof. He welcomes our affection. We are able to kiss his feet as it were. We are able, and he welcomes our intimacy with him. He promises to make us his dear children and promises to be with us forever and ever. May we never lose sight of the joy or 
the wonder of a sovereign God in all his glory and majesty leaving heaven to come down to us, to become one of us in order that we might have fellowship with him. Intimate fellowship with him and experience his love. That message is one of repeatedly in the Gospels, fear not, fear not, fear not. At Mount Sinai, they were trembling, they were afraid. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, there's reason to tremble and be afraid. But if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are his son, and he welcomes you, and he embraces you. Marvel of the touch of the Master's hand. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you, Lord, for your condescension in sending your Son to become a human being who humbled himself and allowed him to be touched so that we could have this incredible relationship with you. Lord, help us as we just reflect on this incredible truth, as we reflect on all that that touching represents, how in the Old Testament, even that which was associated with God could not be touched, let alone the person of God. But in Jesus, we can touch him. We're invited to do so. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We may find help in time of need. May we know, O oh God, the reality of your love for us. May that not just be words on our lips, but may that be emotive of our feelings of our very heart. Help us to understand we can come to you. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be at arm's length. Lord, you invite us. You command us to come. Lord, may we run to you, for you are running to us. In Jesus' name, amen.